I'm going to be grabbing a few different passages from these two chapters, three chapters, 32, 34, 33, and 34. So feel free to go home and have a little fun evening reading and read more in detail. I'm going to jump around just a little bit as we try to tell this story and try to understand what it might mean for us today. Beginning in chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I think that's hilarious. As for this fellow Moses, we don't know who that guy is. So Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. By the way, so moms, if your teenage son comes and says, I'd like to have an earring, it's in the Bible. Um, And bring them to me. So all the people took their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. No, not that type of calf, uh, this type of calf. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is what the people say. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and then got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, Moses. Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of a mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. And then he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? That's the end of our first portion of our reading here. So I know that Pastor Mark, a couple weeks ago, talked with you guys about this golden calf incident, and I was here, and it was fantastic and wonderful, and I'm going to just additionally add another turn. And truth be told, I could sit here, and it's like hard for me not to preach this additional message about how much God is cueing Moses to intercede. Let me, your people, who you brought. There's all these cues to say, Moses, fight back with me. And Moses does, because God gets so angry, he's just going to kill the people entirely. And then Moses argues back and forth, yeah, but what about your reputation, God? What will they say about you in Egypt? We should really be concerned about your rep. He actually doesn't argue, oh, I'm sure some of the people are innocent. He just says, what about your rep? Which is a whole other sermon. What do we do with a God who seems to be motivated by his reputation being changed? So all of these things we could sit and talk about, but instead we're going to talk about this great sin. Moses says to Aaron, how, what did these people do to you that you allowed them to go and you led them into this great sin? This particular term is a legal term. It's found in documents from Ugaritic and Egyptian marriage contracts, and it always refers to adultery. And it's also in the Bible and forms one or another in the Hebrew, describing Abraham and Avimelech's issue back in Genesis. Remember when Abraham's like, no, she's my sister. And there's like this, what, you almost led me into this great sin. Joseph and Potiphar's wife episodes. And it's also used in the Bible to refer to idolatry. So in our biblical text, that phrase, great sin, is about adultery slash idolatry. 
And when Moses says that to Aaron, we start to get this beautiful key to unlock this episode and why Moses is so angry and why God is so angry and why it's such a big deal. When God gathers the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai, he starts, as we talked about before, with this Decalogue, these 10 words. And it begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the beginning. And as Moses is getting these commandments, as he's up on the mountain with God for these 40 days and 40 nights, and Pastor Mark talked about their loss of a personified image of leadership or God in their life, they decided to create something else, this idol, that may or may not have been trying to represent the God that brought them out, but they needed something physical, something tangible, and they fell into this great sin. But the Bible seems to be saying that this was a huge deal. And the language that is being used throughout this entire Sinai covenant moment, as God is covenanting with his people and making this covenant, these two tablets, one for God, one for the people, equal, they're both the exact same words on the tablet, most scholars believe. Not that God couldn't find one rock big enough to write one through ten, but he wrote, or like, so it's like one through five and six through ten. You guys ever see that, like in the courthouses, school? Yeah. Know that God had two copies of this beautiful covenant he was making, one for God to keep, one for us, his people, to keep, and both copies were going to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant, and indeed later on they are. Now, as God is entering into this covenant, God starts to use marriage language. I, Danielle, take you, Kevin, we said on our, married, on our wedding day, right? I, Danielle, take you, Kevin, to be my lawful husband. And we have this beautiful marriage language that we use. Well, when we reach back into this Sinai episode, we have that marriage language starting right at the very beginning. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. It starts right away with, I am God. I love you deeply. I rescued you and brought you out. And you're not supposed to be with anyone else. So as God is giving all of these commands and the people are hearing them and saying down below, yes, we will, we have heard and we will do it. In those moments where they are losing faith, they decide to cheat on God on the wedding night. So you can imagine if you were anyone, anyone married? So you get married, you say, may, you may kiss your bride, you kiss, right? And then you walk down the aisle and your partner says, be right back, grabs somebody from the bridal party, commits a great sin, and then comes back to you. Hey, baby, what's up? First dance? They're going to announce the couple? What's your response at this point? You would go, like any sane person, and grab the marriage license from the pastor and say, I'm going to need that back. And you would rip it up. And that's what seems to be happening here. As Moses comes down and he sees this terrible thing that has happened, that the Israelites in this short period of time have, have committed a great sin, he breaks the tablets. Now, this was not an impetuous act. Moses isn't having a bad day. He didn't trip and fall. It's the, quite deliberately the, signified the abrogation of the covenant. So this moment says this covenant does not exist anymore. It's now been broken. 
In Akkadian legal terminology, to break the tablet means to invalidate or repudiate a document or agreement. You've broken faith. You've stopped the covenant. As the Israelites moved into this place of great sin, the Bible is using language not just to simply say, hey, you know, that was really bad. You guys probably shouldn't do that anymore. Bad Israelites, bad. Let's start again. The Bible is saying this was so atrocious. It took the very heart of this faithful covenant of God and his people. And in the moment when the covenant is being made, the people broke it. And Moses comes down, his anger burns when he sees what's happening. And as the Bible describes what the Israelites are doing, it says that they're out of control. They're just completely out of control. And all of this language of adultery and idolatry and covenant starts to continue on with Moses' next act. He then grounds the tablets into powder. And makes them drink it. Is this not weird? Right? So back to my modern day analogy. You come to me and you say, Pastor, rip up the marriage license. Don't send it in. Things are off. And I rip it up and you're like, can you please now grind that into powder? And I would like to make this person drink it. We're like, that might be a little excessive. Right? I get it's really horrible and awful. We'll send people home with their little, you know, favors. But we probably don't need to make them drink papery powder. Moses takes these tablets, breaks them, and then, so he's broken the covenant, grinds it into powder. Why does he do this? Well, we seem to have a clue in Numbers chapter 5. This is one of the most weird and slightly disturbing passages in the text. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, and I'm happy to talk about it now so we can get to the book of Numbers. I won't have to talk about it then. This is the test for an unfaithful wife, the sota, S-O-T-A-H. Now, the rabbi said that this test was actually never carried out, but that we have a rule for how to do it. So the way that the text is written in Numbers chapter 5, it says this. If you are married and you think that your wife, it's always the wife, it's never the husband. If you think that your wife is sleeping around, then you go to her and say, I think you have, you know, done a great sin. And then you and your wife go before the priest and you say, my wife has done this great sin. Then the priest will take the ground from the temple, the dust from the temple floor, and he will mix it into the water and he will force the woman to drink it. Isn't, are you happy this is in your Bible? And as he forces her to drink it, he places a curse upon her that says, if you have been unfaithful, may your womb and other parts distend and become bloated and your thigh, and, uh, and then may you die, right? But if you're not guilty of this sin, then you'll be fine. Now, we could see some redemptive movements to this. We could go, well, if you just happen to have a jealous husband, you already have a priest that is required to sort of step in and calm the dude down. Because has anybody here gotten, you know, have we all died or had distended wombs because of eating mud, right? So this is one of those places in the Bible that the divine justice must be carried out miraculously. Either for for her to be guilty, it must be that God actually steps in and ends her life. Because there's no way that we would all be dead, right, if eating mud killed you. Because by, if, 
yeah, by year two, you've eaten a lot of mud. So I'm speaking as a parent of a toddler. Um, so at this point, then we have this really weird ceremony, and this is the test for an unfaithful wife. This is the test that Moses gives to the Israelites. He grinds up this tablet, the covenant, he forces them to drink it. So we have all this weird marriage, divorce, great sin language in the context of this golden calf incident. And this is where I'd like to talk about grace upon grace. If, again, going back to that wedding ceremony, the modern time, the person said, wow, I just found my beloved partner in a great sin. All right, you know what? Second chances. Let's go back up before the pastor, and we're going to take the vows again. The therapists and sane people in the room would think, crazy. Not a good idea. They've already betrayed you once within two minutes of your wedding vows. Like during the wedding, they've betrayed you. But this is exactly what God does. God says to Moses, come back up. Chisel out two stone tablets like the first one and come back up to Mount Sinai early in the morning. And Moses does so. And he carries the two stone tablets up there in his hand. And then the Lord comes down in the cloud and stands there with him and proclaims his name, the Lord. And God then says this, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Whoa. God calls Moses back up. Let's do the covenant again. I know it's only been five minutes. But here we are. We're going to rebuild this covenant. We're going to make the deal again. Come back up, Moses, because let me tell you who I am. And as God stands in the face of this great sin of his people, as he's rescued them with his mighty and outstretched arm, as he's brought them back to himself, God stands there and says, Ah, now you can know who I am. I am compassionate. And gracious. And I'm slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now this move for God doesn't come easy. Because if you read back the next the chapter just before. We're now in 34. God's like, you know what Moses? Step aside. Let me take these people out. But he cues Moses to intercede. Moses does intercede. And even as Moses and God himself are so angry with Aaron, with what Aaron has done, Aaron survives. He himself is not killed. He's not invited back up on the mountain the second time. But he himself is also now receiving this mercy. Now, the next portion that we all want to never, ever read because it's confusing for us, it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And we're like, oh, bummer. Ah, see, that's why I never really can handle the Bible, right? Because it has the one part I like and then the next part I don't like. And then I just want to kind of cross that part out. <clears throat> I'd like to challenge you to see yet even this part as a picture of God's grace. That if God is saying 
that he will maintain love to thousands. And in the earlier portion where it talked about this same passage describing God's character, it says he will keep his covenant of love to a thousand generations, but the sins of the fathers of the parents will fall upon the third and fourth generation. You guys, we haven't even reached the thousands generations yet in our timeline, our, our way of the world going. We are still increasingly experiencing this love of God. And the third to the fourth generations has long since passed. Maybe what God is explaining in this passage is that here's his character, but his character does not mean that you escape the consequences of your sin. 3,000 people still die at the hands of the Levites. There's a curse placed upon the people. There is still death. There's still consequences. Things still happen. And in fact, the Israelites are going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness and a whole generation will need to die out in the wilderness before the next, the children can go into the land that God has promised. There are things that we can't escape. There are natural consequences to our sin, but God's grace is still on display here as we see that he is willing to overlook those to the thousands generation. Now, as we look at God's grace through this, and as we read this incredible description of who God is, the idea here, as we look at it today, is to be simply in awe of God's grace, in awe of God's mercy, in awe of how he handles and and manages us as his people. Because let's be honest, we've done things not, not far worse, right? We've done things much less worse than sleeping around on the wedding night. Let's hope. Okay, so all of us together, we've recognized that we have had sins, we, th- we have things we feel guilty about, and sometimes we have held ourselves in deep unforgiveness. We've been unwilling to see that God could use us beyond this one moment in our life. What this passage tells us is that God is ready and willing and able to move forward into a new chapter. And the idea here is to inculcate the human imitation of God's moral qualities. That as we look at this characteristic of God, that God is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and gracious and merciful. As we look at that, we start to say, how can I do that too? How can I start to imitate this God who holds me in such, un, in such forgiveness, in such mercy, in such compassion? How do I then demonstrate that same grace towards others? And if Moses is willing to intercede on behalf of a people who have done such wrong, if he's willing to intercede on behalf of his brother, who, let's be honest, no chance did that thing just get formed, right? I just threw in these earrings and out came this calf. That is not the way it worked. And that's exactly why Moses kind of grabs hold of Aaron tightly and says, what did these people do to you that you, you led them into this great sin? But Moses still yet intercedes for his brother. Who is it in your life and in mine that we are holding in such unforgiveness? Who is it that we hold with such a lack of grace and a lack of compassion that it's hard for us to even say their name without gritting our teeth? I'm trying to say it like this, clenched. Now, forgiveness does not mean saying it's all okay. Notice again that there's still a consequence for the actions but it's a consequence that we leave in the hands of God. Forgiveness is our moment to say, God, I trust you for divine justice. 
I'm not going to try to have my justice against this person. I'm going to trust you, the ultimate judge, to be compassionate, to be grace-filled, and to be merciful. And I will now try to extend that grace towards others. We see this in our Messiah Jesus. We see this more clearly maybe than in any other portion of his life than when he is nailed upon the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They are literally killing him, mocking him, spitting upon him, ending his life, and he begs for their forgiveness. Stephen, who will then be stoned in the book of Acts, he does the same thing. That we have models in our faith tradition that say, no matter what, we are to forgive. And they ask Jesus this very specifically. Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? No, no, 77 times. 70 times seven. So many times, you guys. And if our God does this, then who are we to hold anyone without grace? Because grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. It opens up a whole new bit of possibility. And when we are grace-filled towards ourselves, it changes everything. Most of us, I would say all of us in this room, if you're a human being with a breath and a pulse, then you have held yourself in unforgiveness. But the moment you experience just a taste of God's grace towards you, you're changed. And you're able to start to extend that forgiveness towards yourself and others in a whole new way. This happens to Paul, who was persecuting the Christians. But in 1 Timothy, he says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst. And as we even look to the crisis that's happening throughout the world, as we see people who may previously have been heck-bent on the destruction of America, now in desperate need of an outstretched arm, of a glass of water, of some food, of some shelter, we recognize that any one of those persons could have this story too. If the Apostle Paul, who terrorized the first century church, who killed Christians, who traveled to do so, to hunt them down, if he can be changed, then we can all experience the grace of God. If God stands up on a mountaintop and says, I am the Lord and I am gracious and compassionate and full of love, abounding in love, slow to anger. If God can say that, on the wedding night when his people have committed a great sin, then how dare you or I hold anyone in any less grace? This is this beautiful, incredible, and see, now we all feel guilty because we didn't hold people in grace, and now you're not holding yourself in grace, right? Because you see how the cycle, right? We all were like, oh, see, now I'm going to, no, no, no. There's grace for that too. There's grace for this one moment right now. There's grace. Because God has called us to be stewards of this grace. 
For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have been saved through grace to do good works. So if you've started to experience a little bit of that grace, and then if you start to feel like, wow, I'm not really doing great at extending the grace to others, and then you lean back into this prayer of Paul's in Ephesians, and you say, ah, but it's not from me. I can lean into the grace of God and ask that that grace be revealed and pushed back out into this world. And First Peter says this in 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. This God is incredible in his grace. I can't imagine any more of a grace-filled act than to say to those Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, come back up, let's do this again. Let me reveal myself again. I can't imagine anything more grace-filled. And that God that stands at Mount Sinai and that looks into the face of such rebellion and such unfaithfulness and such unspeakable disobedience, he looks into each one of our lives, into the darkest corners of our lives, into the worst portions of our lives, the things that no one knows about, and he stands there and he says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiveness, and mercy, come to me. The thing about grace, the thing about grace upon grace upon grace is that all you have to do is open your arms to receive it. There's nothing for you to do. It's just grace. It's just God's grace. We simply trust in a Lord that looks and understands the need for divine justice and does so moderated with beautiful grace and incredible forgiveness and love. But only if we first receive it can we extend it to others. So wherever you are, wherever you are in whatever space you're in, whatever thing it is in your life where you're not willing to hold yourself in grace, anyone else get stuck there? Where in just a couple moments, after one moment, one thing in your life, you think, you know what, oh my gosh, I'm such a terrible person. And you start saying things to yourself that you would never say to anybody, a stranger on the street you would never say to. I stink, I'm terrible, I can't believe I missed that thing, I can't believe I did this, I can't believe, oh my gosh, these people must think I'm crazy. I, and then you stir about it, right? And then in the middle of the night you wake up and you're still upset about it? No? Nobody else in the room? I'm the only one that has to listen to NPR at 2 in the morning? Okay. Put me back to sleep because I'm fretting about this thing. I'm the worst pastor in the world, right? Like, how can I? Okay. Be grace-filled. Be compassionate towards yourself. Oh, yeah. No. Okay. I'll do that better, and I'll do that better. And then the next day, it happens again. And I have to remember and lean back in once again to this full embodiment of who God is, this fullness, this God that Jesus knew, that Jesus Loved that Jesus strove to emulate God in a bod. God in human form, Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And that same forgiveness, that same grace is here for you and for me. From the base of Mount Sinai, reaching all the way to the book of Revelation, we see a God who just can't wait to wrap each one of us up in his abounding love and give us that grace. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, so much for your example of what it means to live in grace, to extend that grace towards others, and to trust God for all that we need. 
Jesus, we pray right now that for each one of us here in this room that holds ourselves in states of of pain and lack of mercy and lack of grace, Jesus, we ask right now that you would help us to be kind to ourselves, that you would help teach us what it looks like to see ourselves through your eyes as you extend yourself to us, as you once again, over and over again, hold open your arms and beckon us to come home to grace. And Jesus, for those of us in this room who are holding others in states of ungrace, God, would you push us as we lean back into who you are and how you love us, God, as we identify ourselves as the one loved by you, the one forgiven by you, may we love others also loved and forgiven by you. Give us the strength to do so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.